We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning as people are rushing to their seats there. All right, we're in Proverbs in our reading, and we're going to turn there. If you have a Bible, I'd like to have you turn there, Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 says, The words of Agur, the son of Jaka, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom, nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Well, that admission is a start, isn't it? If you don't have the knowledge of the Holy One, then you are really behind the times, if I could say it that way. You're not very wise or intelligent. Verse 4, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? if you know. Interesting that there's a recognition there of a son, isn't it? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, we notice that in times of great prosperity, people forget God. I'm full. I don't need God. In other words, life has been too easy. Any reason you think why God might make life a little harder for some of us? Yeah, indeed. Verse number 10. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation... Oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough, the grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. 
There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. The way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns a fool when he's filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people, not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. There are three things which are majestic in pace, yes, four which are stately in walk, a lion which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any, a greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, Put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. May God be blessed in that, the reading of his word this morning. Genesis chapter 10, please. If you're visiting this morning, I do want to welcome you. Thank you for coming. Uh, We have a visitor named Roger here. Make sure you greet him. After the service, if there's a chance to do that, I put some uh, slides up here uh, with the help of Brother Dwayne, and I'm uh, going to use those this morning um, for some of the time, not most of the time. But um, let me, let me uh, just start with the text here. Remind, remember that in the book, uh, in effect, if those lights are affecting the live stream too negatively, you can just bring them back up. I'll let Jansen and Dwayne figure that out. Um, Recall that there are the ten major sections in the book that are divided with this word toledot, this word generations, and, uh, or this is the genealogy of. And we have a new one of those after the death of Noah when it says in verse 29, he was 950 years old and he died. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now, um, I want to actually do a high-level kind of thing first, then kind of dive in and then come back up for air maybe once in a while here. Uh, I'm not going to preach through this whole genealogy and give you some kind of list of the meanings of the names and things like that. I'll let you read uh, those, and uh, there are resources, some of which I've pointed to in the back of my notes that you can look up. But just by way of kind of introduction to the high level of chapters 10 and 11, I want you to be aware of this. There is a question that arises about the order of the events in the chapters. And in chapter 10, you have the mention of uh, nations and peoples. And then in chapter 11, it talks about the Tower of Babel and the origin of nations and languages and so on, which we're going to get into in some depth this morning. And so some people have said, well, what's the deal with the order there? Chapter 10, nations are existing, but chapter 11, uh, they are just beginning. You have to recognize, like we found with Genesis 1 and 2, 
that Genesis is not entirely, perfectly chronological, and neither does it have to be, nor can we demand it to be. If you were trying to summarize the first, well, let me think, uh, 3,000 years of world history, just how would you do it (laughs) within the space of 12, 11 chapters? Uh, Many times you read a history book, you know, the history of of religion in America or the history of the, uh, you know, the United States or something, and you're trying to cover, you know, 200 years, and what does the author do? Well, this chapter deals with, you know, subject X. And then this chapter over here deals with subject Y, but you might be going backwards another 150 years from where you just ended the previous chapter to kind of get a running head start and and talk about that subject. So um, we have to kind of give the author Moses here space to have a little literary creativity and ordering of the thing. And so chapter 11 explains the origin of the different nations that are listed in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the summary. Chapter 11 is the explanation of that. And so what we're going to do is actually start in chapter 11 first uh, with the Tower of Babel. But let me see what I have on the slides here, if this will reach. In chapter 10, this is one diagram that can help you kind of place all of these different names. So actually, let me just do it that way then. What I'll do is I'll just give you kind of a little outline of 10. And uh, it says in verse 2 of chapter 10, the sons of Japheth were, okay, the sons of Japheth. And then it goes through those. And then it talks about the sons of Ham starting in verse number 6, okay, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And you'll see down here that we have, in diff- there's different color and uh, shapes for these names. So the descendants of Ham in the pink, and they're placed around here on the map. We have the descendants of Japheth. We just talked about uh, Javan and Katim and, and Medai and Ashkenaz and Togarma and Gomer, all of them placed there. You see how they're kind of more to the north, uh, put and, uh, and Ham's descendants more down here in, in uh, Libya and Egypt and so on. And then we have the descendants of Shem, and those are in chapter 10, verse 21, And children were also born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. Now there's some question there as to who exactly is the elder. Shem is always listed first. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So uh, I have taken it that Shem is the elder. Uh, He is certainly, by for the Bible's purposes, the most important because from him, Eber, the Hebrews, and from them, Abram and and the Jews and the Semite peoples. And so for the biblical narrative, that's important. That's not to say all these other peoples aren't important. Don't be hearing me say that. But for the purposes of the Scripture's uh, narrative and what God is trying to accomplish, these are uh, the notable and important folks that are listed there. So again, um, we'll come back to this, but just kind of gives you the idea that in chapter 10, we're covering how did this whole kind of uh, Middle Eastern and Asian world become populated from Noah and from his three sons. There's another, I think, diagram here that I have. Uh, it's a little harder to follow because the, it's much smaller, but you have all the different groups here. And you notice that most of them are centered in this part of the map. They haven't c- kind of moved out here farther to the west 
or to the east. Uh, but that, of course, uh, happened without question. Well, that's what's called the table of nations. Um, but to get there, we need to go to chapter 11. So let's do that. And I'm going to give you the major takeaways from chapter 11. I list them first, okay, so we don't get lost in the forest here. First of all, God explains to us the origin of languages and nations, and by extension, the borders, you know, the places of dwelling of those nations, their cultures, and then by extension further, this teaches us why there are unique features of physical appearance amongst the human race. He also shows in this portion how he forced obedience to a command that he had given earlier in the book, and that is in chapter 9, verse number 1. Notice that uh, this is at the end of the flood. It says, So God blessed Noah and his sons, this is 9-1, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this was repeated in chapter 128, uh, in chapter 8, verse 17. God says to bring out of the ark all those living things so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And then in chapter 9, verse 7, it says, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. We already alluded to how people today uh, hold to this uh, kind of new word here I just found or heard in a video recently, uh, antinatalism. Natal. Natal, birth, prenatal, people are against natalism. That is, they're against birth. They want population control, population reduction. They want abortion. What is wrong with us? God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we say, as a people, no, we won't do that. Because every time God says, to do this or don't do that, we don't do this, and we do do that. So strange. But anyway, uh, devastating to world. Anyway, be fruitful and multiply. God's going to force obedience to this command to fill the earth. Now, we've already learned where the earth and the universe came from. We've learned the origin of plants, animals, people, sin, death. We learned about the worldwide judgment that occurred. We learned about the geographical and topographical features that the present earth has that came from the flood. But now we answer the question, where did languages and cultures come from? Today there are about 6,000 languages in the world. But listen now, like with our belief about the creation of the earth and the universe and humanity and all of that, we do not believe in an evolutionary approach to the origin of language, okay? You probably haven't thought about that as much or as, you know, you know, kind of think about evolution. We think, well, that's all about, you know, how molecules became amoebas and all that sort of thing. No, it didn't. But evolution as an idea has come to permeate all scientific thinking, whether in this case it's linguistics or it's all kinds of other things, uh, religion, evolutionary uh, ideas about religion and how the uh, Bible came about and all of that, uh, it's, it's become just a 
a kind of a ubiquitous kind of thought. It's like a neat, um, ingenious kind of thought that a, a secular scientist had and, and, and developed, and then the whole kind of academy follows along with it. It just permeates uh, everything. Well, we don't believe in an evolutionary approach to language. Um, scientists, linguists suggest that languages came about over the course of 150,000 to 200,000 years. But with a brief time of less than 10,000 years to work with in the biblical timeline, the origin of so many nations and languages does cry out for an explanation, and the Bible covers it here in Genesis 11. As with the creation and all those other things that we mentioned, the origin of, the languages also had a supernatural origin, not merely a naturalistic origin. Are you with me? Everybody thinks today naturalism, naturalism. You know, processes just continue as they were today. It's just like it was in the past, only we've just moved on and, and the magic of time has worked its, its, uh, you know, its magic and here we are and we've got all these variations and differences and things like that. The earth is not 200,000 years old. Amen. So we don't have that much time to have languages evolve. The Bible tells us in chapter 11, verse number 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech. Well, that's not too much of a stretch, is it? Because Noah and his family most certainly shared a, a language with each other. And when they came off the boat, that was the only language left on the earth. Even if there were multiple languages before, maybe there were a few, because uh, the creation had happened over 1,600 years before, but there was only one now, the language of Noah and his family. There was also a common location. Of course, you know the ark rested where? The mountains of Ararat. And uh, so from there, now let's see, where are we at here? Where is that? Somewhere in Turkey, and I don't know exactly where, but it's somewhere I think over here where those mountains are. You'll correct me if I am wrong about that. But that's where, that's where humanity restarted, if you will. But it doesn't appear to be so to modern scientists. Everybody goes to what place? They always talk about Mesopotamia, the region in the midst of the rivers. That's what Meso, midst, Potamia, rivers means, the region of the, uh, in between the rivers. Um, and that's, we'll see something about why that is in just a moment. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. There it is. Okay, that place, and that is actually down here on this map, Shinar, and, uh, and in, in modern-day Iraq, I think that's why I don't have the modern borders shown on there, but and uh, there's a place that we now have known to be named Babylon in that general area. So they dwelt there, and then they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly.'" They had uh, brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so it appeared to me when I was a child reading this that they wanted to build kind of an infinitely high tower. You know, it doesn't say that. It says that they want to build a tower that's very tall, the top of it is up in the atmosphere, the heavens, that's going to be, you know, a skyscraper. 
And so they began to go about doing that. But the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the sons of men had built. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Languages, I don't have this in my notes, but basically the proliferation of languages is a judgment from God for disobedience amongst the people that he had ordered to live and do things in a certain way. So a good portion or most of the population of the world decided to settle in this place that became known as Babel, confusion, and uh, the historical precursor of Babylon, the city. Now from chapter 10, to go back to chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, and uh, I'll read that there. It says, Cush begot this fellow named Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So this is basically just saying he was a famous man. Everybody knew who this guy was. It became this kind of slogan about him. And the beginning of his kingdom was, see that? Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kelna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. And then we go on to continue reading in the genealogy. So Nimrod was the leader of these people, and his name may have been related to the name of Ninurta, the Assyrian god of hunting and warfare. This man was a powerful leader who ruled uh, an early kingdom, some suggest as a tyrant in the reading if you look him up, and others uh, as well here as a mighty hunter. We could only speculate on the kind of game that he hunted. I've, I've uh, done some mental thought about that, some uh, experimentation, if you will. What kind of game did he hunt anyway in Mesopotamia uh, that made him so famous? Perhaps he was the leader of a large hunting party that worked together to take out huge animals and to make whatever they made out of them besides food. And then I picked this up as well, a quotation here from uh, a dictionary online. The legendary Nimrod is also sometimes associated with the attempt to build the Tower of Babel. Because the tower resulted in the wrath of the Lord and proved a disastrous idea, Nimrod, lowercase n, came to have another meaning, a stupid person. Or sometimes people use the word to refer to an idiot or a jerk. Okay, uh, You've probably heard that before. Um, and so that's where it comes from. Anytime somebody uses that, they're kind of giving a tip of the hat to the biblical history of this fellow who was a leader of rebels against God. Not a good idea. So they planned to build this tall tower. And I, don't, I unfortunately don't have a uh, picture of this. I should have. I don't think I do. Let me see. In my slides here. Oh, that was a neat little map, by the way, that I found um, with all the flags of the nations there shown. Uh, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, I put a lot of uh, figures here for these uh, genealogies. Did I put? No, I didn't. 
Hmm. Well, I know I had in my mind, uh, I'm seeing this picture that I thought I put in there, but I didn't, of what's called a ziggurat, a stepped pyramid, if I could call it that. These people wanted to build a structure, a city, as well as a very tall tower, and they were shifting from a nomadic lifestyle to a city dwelling. And the tower they suggested was what we today call a ziggurat, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, which is a, a terraced or stepped tower with the lower layers larger than the ones above them. You can kind of imagine that in your mind. People built such structures for what? No surprise the worship of pagan gods. Like the great ziggurat that is still standing in Ur, in what was Sumeria, 4,000 years later. In other words, it's still there today. That is an old structure, but it was dedicated to the moon god. I suspect they had, uh, you know, the top, which was flat, would be a place where they would worship this moon god. It would elevate them above the surrounding terrain and be a place where they would carry out their religious uh, services or whatever you'd call them, pagan worship. The people, though, here had two purposes for this building project, in addition to possibly using it as a place of idolatrous worship. The first was to make a name for themselves. Did you see that? It says, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. What character trait does that exhibit? Anyone? It's pride. It's arrogance. We want a name for ourselves. We want fame and renown because of this great project that we're going to accomplish. They wanted to make a name or a heritage that would last for future generations. Well, they did, but it was a name that lasted in infamy, not in fame. They were exhibiting a corporate kind of pride, not humility. Secondly, and related was that they did not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We want to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But God said, I want you to go and fill up the earth. They said, we don't want to do that. Rebels. So they did not want to be scattered. The concentration of their efforts and power would enhance their fame and glory but this concentration of people was in direct rebellion against God's command to fill the earth, thus to spread out over the earth. So listen, God's blessing only rests on obedience. It's not going to rest on disobedience. Disobedience is a sure way to arouse God's contrariness, if you will, his wrath to your plan. And so God responded to their plan. He viewed the work they were doing, verses 5, 6, and 7, and he said, uh, you know, they're going to be able to do it because they are working together in this large conglomeration of people. They share a single language. They're united in purpose. <clears throat> they understand one another. And so they have two, more than two heads put together, better than one. They could make great progress toward their goals. In fact, the Lord said nothing that they propose to do will be withheld. And that could be in the area of construction, but I think it's with regard to the purposes that they're trying to accomplish. Not just that they'll be able to build big things, but that they'll be able to make a name for themselves. They'll be able to persist in disobedience against me. Nothing they propose to do 
Uh, it's not clear what else they might have proposed to do, but certainly would have fallen along these lines of pride and rebellion against God. But their combined intellectual powers and labor would be able to accomplish great feats, and such things done for pride and fame are a danger to society. I mean, look at Nebuchadnezzar, for example. He builds this huge statue to himself. To himself. What pride. And then he demands people to bow down and worship it, attacking religious freedom and attacking the people of Israel from being able to worship their God as they were commanded to do. What is this? But that's what arrogance does, doesn't it? Sets up a standard and then says, well, if you don't meet that standard, we're going to put you in jail or kill you or whatever. Same, things, same kind of things happen today. Same kind of thinking permeates the minds of unbelief. But let's not think just because we've talked about this large city and structure of this tower that we shouldn't think that all modern infrastructure projects are, are evil. United efforts today of even much larger size than the Babel ziggurat or the Ur ziggurat, we can't think about those in a negative light. If, if people are constructing these projects to provide a useful resource, such as water, electricity, transportation of goods, services, people, or protection from war and other things. I mean, a huge project like the Great Wall of China, the longest and perhaps largest construction project ever, was to do what? Keep out friendly neighbors? No. So if it was for a, 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 an outcome that was decent, um, useful, that's not bad. But if the motivation is if the motivation is not pride or to rebel against God's express command or to elevate idolatrous worship, that can be fine. But some projects are not so. I wonder sometimes about skyscrapers today that are built with an eye to vying for the title of the biggest and the best. The architect gets the glory. The builders get the glory. The country gets the glory because they've built now the biggest one. Perhaps monuments to individuals. Perhaps it's huge temples built to false gods or huge, basically what are temples or mausoleums to venerate a, a departed leader or a beloved person. Uh, these are human-centered uh, individual-centered, not for the good of society necessarily. And so you've got to kind of take each case on, uh, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis. So God resolved to confuse their language. The result was they would not understand one another. There's not much more frustrating than being in a different place, a country if you've traveled a far way, or even in your home place, and you're trying to speak with somebody, but you can't because there's a language barrier. How, have you experienced that before? Yeah, with the limited Spanish that I have, trying to communicate to people who are fluent in Spanish but not in English, you know, you can barely kind of make things work in the, in the communication uh, effort. Um, or if you have somebody, maybe you have a, a difficulty in hearing, or maybe you have a difficulty in hearing uh, not because your ears are bad, but because your processing speech is difficult when somebody has a heavy accent trying to, to, to discern 
how to speak to them. It's very difficult. And so you could see how this would slow down the ambitious uh, progress of their proud rebellion, and it did. As a result of the confusion of the languages, the people were scattered and now could fill the earth despite their initial rebellion against doing that. And so the existence of people in all parts of the globe spreading out, as it were, from this little central location here to all this map here is attributable to God's supernatural incursion into the human race. So, uh, you know, you'll hear like when you're studying this, well, how, how did the people of North and South America get here? And what do, you, what do you hear? What's the theory? Well, there's the land bridge, you know, somewhere over here that, that allowed them to get there. And, and maybe so. But I want you to be thinking of Genesis 11 when you are talking about subject matter like that, because that's the explanation of it. And by the way, why did there have to be a land bridge anyway? Do you think these people were so dumb they didn't know how to use boats? Noah just came off of a boat. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, kind of condescend and say, well, they just didn't have it. You know, we know so much better today. That is intellectual arrogance, my friends, and we need to repent of that. So maybe they used a boat instead of a land bridge. But anyways, not the point of the message here. Another result was the people ceased building their great city. The city became known as Babel, which means confusion. So the passage teaches us the origin of languages was not evolutionary. It was supernatural. Now, of course, those languages that began there were probably several dozen languages. I'll justify that in a moment. So they were created kind of out of nothing at this point in history. And after that, variants would develop to the thousands that we have today. Why? Because of regional isolation. If the people knowing one language, or that's who they're comfortable with, they go and they move to a certain place, they're geographically isolated, they, uh, they uh, reproduce amongst themselves, and they start to have certain features facial characteristics, skin color, height, and different things like that, skills. And so they become specialized, if you will. And so that's where we get the new variations. And then a, a group maybe splinters off of that and goes somewhere else and, and uh, develops a new variation of a language. A second lesson from this is, listen to this, a world with a single language, culture, and government is not how God wants humanity to exist. After Babel, God does not desire the human race to have one language, one culture, one government. Okay? You're thinking one world government, perhaps, in your mind already. Until the kingdom of Christ, when there will be one world government, God set up the world with multiple nations to inhabit the entire globe And the impact of this is theologically that sin is restrained because people are not able to collude together in such large groups. Similarly, a single language is not the best for our world because it permits the people to engage in large, God-defying endeavors. Acts 17.26 says that God made of one blood, Adam ultimately, but then through Noah and his family, all the nations that dwell on the earth. He fixed the times and appointed seasons, the, dwelling, the boundaries of their dwelling places. Look that up in Acts 26 when you have 
a moment. God wants that to be the case. In a sense, national boundaries, language boundaries, cultural boundaries did what to the human race? Divide and conquer. Split it up so it's not all one big conglomeration so they couldn't do just whatever they wanted to in rebellion against God. God's people learned from this passage also where Babylon came from. It started out as a place of rebellion against God, and it continues all the way through the book of Revelation. You see Babylon still active in that rebellion against God. Okay, uh, let me say a couple of things about chapter 10. Uh, Go back to that, and then we'll close with the genealogy of Shem. Just take a couple of moments. If you look at chapter 10, you might be like some people and say, you know, you're, you're reading your Bible, you know, it's early January, you're in Genesis, you're all excited, and you come to Genesis 5 with all these names and 10, and you're like, well, can't I just skip those? I can't even say the names. Don't do that, okay? Uh, ponder those names. I was going to joke with you this morning and say, what I'm going to do with you this morning is I'm going to teach you how to read. One of the things that I did uh, by necessity with the students in our Greek class this semester, um, on Thursday nights I'm teaching a Greek first, first semester Greek class, is uh, we, we learn the alphabet, we learn how to pronounce the letters, and one of the first things we learn is how to divide words into syllables so that we can sound out the words one syllable at a time. That's how you learn to read. And so within a couple of weeks, the students in the class could read aloud the Greek language. Now, they couldn't necessarily understand all of it because we haven't got the vocabulary and learned about the verbs and all of that yet, but they could pronounce the words. So to you can pronounce the words. And so I would encourage you, don't just skip the names. Slow down, break the words into syllables a little bit. Teach yourself to read, so to speak. You see, like in verse 3, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphtha and Togarma. See that? You can read those Hebrew names. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, or I will often say that Kittim because the I-M ending, is that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Oh, those were not too bad. The sons of Cush were Sheba, or Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, you might say, or Raama. Double A there, which makes two sounds, not one. And Sabteca. And the sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. So I'm not going to read through all of those, but you can do that. You can do it. Don't be afraid to give it a try. So we looked at all of these already. We saw the uh, genealogical information here. Um, and I give some notes here. If you want to read these later, I'd encourage that. So you can kind of see there are some ideas about where these different people settled. I mean, the Bible tells us. But then we can kind of put some modern names to them 
in modern-day locations like Cyprus and Russia and Armenia and Germany and so on. You get an idea of how the world began to be populated from the beginning. We talked already about sons of Ham and Nimrod and his fame and hunting and leading these rebellious construction projects and things. And we have the sons of Shem. That's on letter F in the notes there under the table of nations. I'll just highlight this for a moment. These people went east of Babylon and in northern Arabia. So if I back up here, um, where are we at? The descendants of Shem. And so we have in the green uh, kind of uh, shapes here as well. This, that's where they went over to the east, our Fakshad and Ashur and Elam and Aram and so on. Okay? Um, and I say in the notes, listen to this. Abram, we're going to find Abram here in cha- end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 next time, moved out of Ur of the Chaldees to Haran and then from Haran to present-day Israel. Okay, so he moved from basically down here up and over to Haran and then he's going to move down into what we now know as Israel. Okay? Ur was a wealthy Sumerian city east and south of Babylon in what we know as modern-day Iraq. That was the place where that 4,000-year-old ziggurat still exists. That's the environment out of which Abram came. Leave your country. Leave your gods. Leave all of that stuff. You're now going to believe in me, God tells him. In chapter 11, we come then to another genealogy, and that is the genealogy of Shem. You say, why all these genealogies? Well, here's what God wants you to know from this. Again, we don't have to go through all of the, all of the names, although I could show you uh, there's Shem, Ham, and Japheth at the bottom there, and uh, we could see Japheth's descendants, Ham's descendants. Boy, there are a bunch of them. And then Shem. And the point of this you know, Noah's up here off the slide, but the point of this is to say Shem, Arphaxad, Shad, Shalat, Eber, Peleg, when the earth was divided, Genesis 11, Babel, all the way down to Nahor, Terah, Abram, and Isaac, and Ishmael. What do you think the point of this genealogy is? It's to tell the nation of Israel, where did you come from? That's what that whole section is about. Don't miss that. That's what God is trying to do. Have you ever wondered, where did I come from? That's sometimes an interesting study, genealogical study. It gives you a little bit of sense of what is the heritage from whence I came? What is the spiritual heritage from whence I came? I've done that study a little bit in my family, tremendous study on my dad's mom's side. And to think about some in, the, um, in Germany and Prussia and coming over to the United States and in the kind of uh, Mennonite sort of faith tradition, which is fairly close to ours, you know, not entirely, but uh, very interesting to see that. So God wants us to know where Abram or Abraham came from and where the Jewish people come from. This is significant for the history of our redemption. Do you know why? Because where I draw this red line, that is where the Messiah's lineage comes from. Very important in the history of redemption because that, our redemption, is integrally connected to the nation of Israel and ultimately to the Messiah. 
Listen, none of us are saved. None of us are Christ followers. None of us, none of us are Christians without the Jews. Yes? Salvation is of the Jews. So, you know, us Gentiles, a lot of Gentiles don't like the Jewish people. We love the Jewish people. From them came our salvation. From them, the oracles of God. From them, the service of the tabernacle early on and, and the, the teaching of how sacrifice was so important and so on. The end of the genealogy is interesting as well because it says that Terah, T-E-R-A-H, had uh, three... Let's see, I went past uh, the end of there. Uh, yeah, in verse uh, 26... Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So that's a little unique feature of the genealogy. And when you're looking at a genealogy, you want to look at the beginning, the end, obviously the whole thing in the middle, but look for unique features. Who is called out as important? Well, these three are because they're going to be a key figures in the end of 11 and into chapter 12 and really for the rest of the book of, of Genesis. I'm going to spare you a little detail about a fellow named Kainan. I'll ask you to read that in the notes there. And, uh, but I will say this, very interesting. Noah saw or could have seen, could have known personally representatives from, let's see, where's Noah? He's up here. He lived so long that he knew or could have known all of these people all the way down here for nine generations. Just before Abraham was born, Noah died. Noah. That means that spanning the beginning 2,000 years of world history, you could have had Adam, a little bit of gap, Noah, all the way down to Abraham. Those three men cover the first 2,000 years of world history in their lives. That, to me, is amazing. And that's why there's such a faithfulness in passing on this information down to Moses because the people who told the oral history were alive for hundreds and hundreds of years. Can you imagine knowing your G9 grandfather? Some of us were privileged to know our great-grandparents as children. Some of us barely knew our grandparents. These people, that's a long time. Very interesting how God arranged things. Of course, there were many, many other people as well. So that's just an interesting note. You can look at the chronology chart that I created. It's still on the website uh, there. But God has not left us clueless, my friends, about how we got here. Some of the most boring passages of Scripture, a.k.a. genealogies, are some of the most important. I mean, if somebody asks you, how old is the earth? What's one tool you can use to show them? Well, here's the genealogy. Here, here, here are the names. That takes us to Abram, 2000 B.C., and we can go from there. and We can look back. You know, where do the languages come from? Where do I come from? Where do we as a people come from? Where do the Jews come from? All these things are answered in these boring passages of Scripture. They're critical for biblical history to make sense. So, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to look at this passage. Uh, as irrelevant as some would say, it certainly is relevant today when people want to talk about one world government and all of these sorts of things. You've set the world the way you want it to be. Help us to embrace that, be thankful for it, and live in it. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help us to use these portions as good ways to explain our beliefs and to show that we have a rational set of beliefs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.